Wonderful. Wonderful. There's, there is always lots going on here uh, at church, and you can find out about all the different up-and-coming events and bits and pieces on the church website. Um, so just head there if you want to know what's coming up and, uh, uh, and, and sign up for anything you fancy. I think this coming week we've got the craft crafts going on. We've got our various midweek groups. Got, and the only one who's got young children. We've got Tiny Little Me on Wednesday. We've got uh, coffee, a nibble and natter, sorry, on Tuesdays. So there's always lots going on. Youth on Fridays. And uh, for those who have totally missed all the lights out in the town, all the Christmas music that has been playing in the shops since September, um, and all the decorations that are out. Next week marks the beginning of Advent. Advent. Well, there's one, there's one person happy, at least. Uh, beginning of Advent. So the church will be decorated for Christmas, and we'll begin focusing in on our Advent season, looking at the characteristics of God, the characteristics of God, Emmanuel, with us. So please, please be with us. We will pick up Luke in January. We are in Luke today, but as of next week and going into the first week of January, uh, we won't be, but we will be picking Luke up. Uh, We might even finish Luke next year. We might even, we'll see, we'll see. But today, um, we are really going to be looking at uh, one of four individual lessons that Jesus speaks into to his disciples. Uh, We are still in this environment where Jesus is with this crowd, we can presume from the text, Um, and today we're only going to be looking at the first one, the first one, and then you'll have to pause and wait till January to pick up the other three. But these four individual lessons that he gives these really quick snapshots through are the first, which is what we are looking at today, being aware of false teachers, false teachers and false doctrine. The second is to forgive the repentant believer. The third is to exercise faith. And the fourth is to have a servant heart. So if you have your Bibles with you today, please turn with me. We are in, what, pardon? Oh yes, there was another notice, sorry. My wife has uh, just reminded me. Christmas dinner. Christmas dinner. Thank you, thank you. So last year, last year, we began um, uh, organising a Christmas dinner here at the church on Christmas Day after the Christmas morning service. The heart behind this is really uh, that we recognise that there are some people in the church who may be alone at Christmas. They may not necessarily have family, or if they have children, their children may be doing something else on that particular day. So, obviously, our heart is we don't want to see people alone at Christmas. So, we put on this Christmas lunch here, it normally runs straight from after the, after the morning service. Last year, we were finished by half two, three o'clock, I think, something like that, wasn't it? But it was a lovely, lovely time. Uh, we eat food, we crack crackers and 
you know, we listen to Christmas music in the background, but don't expect to come and just be waited on, okay? <laughs> Last year we had people in the kitchen prepping veg and you come to get, you know, get stuck in to preparing it. So it really is aimed at those who might be lonely at Christmas, uh, either for yourself or if you know someone who is going to be lonely at Christmas, they're also very, very welcome. We, we haven't opened it up yet to the whole town, as in a, as in a very sort of public um, uh, uh, event, because we've just got to work on some logistics on how that might work. So it is focusing primarily on us as a church this year, and we'll see for next year. But you can sign up on the website if you'd like to get involved. I know there have been some people sign up already. Uh, but if that is something that you'd love to come and be part of, then we'd love to see you. Uh, jump on the website, sign up, and we'll enjoy um, some dinner on Christmas Day together. Amen. So yes, if you could turn with me to Luke 17. Luke 17. We're going to be reading the first, well... Verses 1 to 3a, I'll explain, it'll make sense in a moment. That's one of the challenges with uh, having chapters and verses in the Bible. Sometimes the, uh, the verses or the chapter numbers are not necessarily dissected where they logically would flow, but that's okay. So chapter 17, verse 1, these verses say this, and he, Jesus, said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, this has been such a, a wonderful yet challenging through Luke's account of your life of ministry whilst you're on the earth. Lord, there has been times of great encouragement. There has been times of great challenge. There has been times of warning and today is such a passage. So Lord, as we work through this today, I pray that you help us, Lord, on this journey of discernment in this world we live in, in this world where we can access messages and preaches and teaching all over the place. It's very easy to find. Lord, I know people who watch three messages on a Sunday from pastors all over the church, over, all over the world. But Lord, this passage today speaks into our need to use discernment and wisdom, not just take what we hear at face value. So Lord, will you help us? Will you guide us? The intention today is by no means to point fingers and to mock, but it comes from a heart and desire to want to see those who may be on 
a road that is not one laid out by you to come to repentance and to come into the saving faith and knowledge of the true gospel and the true God and the true King of Kings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> now sin or sinning, it's words that we quite often use in our Christian language. And though they are ex- it's extensive in their application, they are quite simple in their meaning. Simply put, sinning is to do something or to think a certain way that goes against God's moral and spiritual standards for us, for his humanity, his created beings. Now, though the act of sinning is a problem that we all need to be aware of and we need to stop and repent from, it is not where the initial battle, or that's not where our battle lies. The temptation to sin, temptation to sin is where our battleground is. The truth is, if we have already, uh, if we're already doing something that, uh, that that goes against God's expected living, His holy living for us, that is causing us to sin, then we have already succumbed to the temptation to do that thing. Jesus, in His parable, begins in verse one by giving His disciples a warning saying temptations to sin are sure to come. But what temptations is he talking about? What specific sins is he referring to or referencing? Well, as I briefly mentioned a little while ago, remember that Jesus had just left an exchange between himself and the Pharisees about wealth. And we heard the mocking that they gave Jesus because of his teaching. Remember, these were the religious leaders of the day who should have been teaching God's word to the people truthfully. But they seemingly weren't doing this correctly and in doing so were inevitably leading God's people off on tangents, on uh, incorrect paths, if you will. Now, though we can all fall into the trap of tempting others to sin, and we can, even us who have been Christians for many years can still fall into the trap of tempting others to sin. Let's just be real about that. I don't believe this first lesson is a blanket statement by Jesus that is referring to all sin, though we will come on to that. He will reference that, but that's not our necessary focus today because I believe that this is a little bit more nuanced in what he's saying in these verses. I would suggest that Jesus, in this moment, after being ridiculed by the Pharisees for his teaching, is warning his disciples to be cautious about temptations to sin 
that are brought about via false teachers of God's word. False teachers of God's word. Those wolves in sheep's clothing who seek to mislead God's people, enticing them into fallacy, those who distort and abuse God's word, either through intentional deception, because there are those who intentionally go out of their way to deceive. Remember, we live in a fallen world, do we not? And the the devil is prowling around looking for whom he wants to devour. There are those who intentionally want to deceive, but there are also those who lead God's people off purely just by ignorance of understanding. They haven't spent time in this or their exegesis isn't, they're they're just, maybe not intentionally, but just abusing God's word. This word temptation can be rendered to snare, to catch, to be a stumbling block in front of someone. Think of uh, any fisher, fisher people here. Anyone like going and sitting on the banks and doing a bit of fishing? No? Surprise you. Oh, we've got one. We've got one. I was going to say that surprises me. I mean, there, we, there's a river right next to us. So that's... No one fancy catching your, your dinner? No? Not in a wind rush? There's no, there's no fish in there. They're all dead. Um, but to help paint this picture, think of a fisher. You know, somebody goes fishing. You know, they're sitting on the bank, they've stuck the worm or the maggot, as I used to do on the hook, and they've they've thrown it out and they're looking for their float. And they're sitting there, aren't they? They're stalking, they're, come on, they're just waiting for that that, that float just to disappear. And that defenceless fish is just minding its own business and sees a nice little wiggly worm. Snatch, that's it. And they're, boof, out the water. It's the same sort of principle here. We being the worm, sorry, we being the fish, and the fisherman, fisherman being the one waiting to catch and to snare someone. Now, throughout time, there has been no end of false religions, false teachings, and false doctrines that have become a snare for those on the journey of searching for God and tempted them to follow these incorrect paths or incorrect thinking. We can see this battle for sound teaching play out in the first century during the establishment of the early church. One of the earliest threats to the early Christian church was Gnosticism. This, I mean, it's a lot to try and put that into a sentence. But in essence, uh, Gnosticism is this idea that the matter and, and flesh is just evil and salvation and enlightenment comes through some sort of secret knowledge. We can even look at some of the New Testament letters and see challenges that they were facing with false teachers and false doctrine. Visiting preachers to the newly established church in Galatia were trying to persuade the Galatians that to be justified uh, by God, they needed to be circumcised and needed to follow God's law. This went against the gospel Paul had taught them 
The justification is by God's grace through faith in Jesus. So writing to them, he says this, I am astonished, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to different gospels. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel, bold words by Paul, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let them be accursed. In essence, let a curse be upon them. Throughout history, the battle for sound teaching of God's word has continued right up to this day and it will continue up to the point that Jesus returns because there will always be those who want to abuse and distort God's word. Here are some examples of false doctrine that is very real and very wrong wrong in and around our day. I'm sure some of you would have heard this, the doctrines that people still uh, buy into. The first, inclusion. The doctrine of inclusion, a gospel which is simply this, the, 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 the old heresy of universalism just repackaged in a new name. It is the belief that there is no future eternal hell. There's no future eternal hell. And that all people will eventually be saved and go to heaven. That's a lovely picture, isn't it? It's a lovely picture and you can understand why people buy into that. Colton Pearson, a former mega church pastor who some of you may know, not personally, but uh, from Tulsa, who sadly died last Sunday, was an advocate for the gospel of inclusion. He didn't start that way, interestingly. But as we looked last week, Jesus himself taught that hell is very real. Very real. The Bible says is very real. So to follow this teaching, this doctrine, is to go against Jesus. And to go against Jesus is to follow what? False doctrine. It's a path. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's off the path that Jesus had established. One I'm sure many in this room have heard the prosperity gospel. <clears throat> the prosperity gospel. Often also referred to as the name it and claim it gospel. Name it and claim it gospel. This is... Uh, <laughs> this really was advocated by the word of uh, faith movement under people like Kenneth Copeland people like Benny Hinn, Joel Olstein, T.D. Jakes, Paula White, Joyce Smyo, Kreffler Dollar, 
Interestingly, when you go and look, they all come from the same sort of university where this doctrine is is taught. It's a false gospel that places God as some sort of magic genie who is there for our needs. God is there for us. He's there to give us health, wealth, happiness. But there's some caveats. Only if you have enough faith, which is one of their big, big staples. Oh, you're not healed because of your lack of faith. Oh, you're not seeing this birth in your life it's because you don't have enough faith. I know there are people in this church that have been hurt by that doctrine. And the second biggest one, well, if you just give enough. Oh, there's treasures in heaven just waiting for you. So if you just give enough, it will release your blessing from heaven. It's hurt many people. Many people. And if that's something you, 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 you know... Costi, uh, uh, Costi Hinn. Does anyone know Costi Hinn? Anyone heard the, his name? Costi Hinn was Benny Hinn's nephew who worked for him and flew around the world doing all these crusades, these healing crusades, until he was challenged. Firstly, by someone at college, a girl at college who challenged his belief. And then when he, praised God, got a little internship into another church that was faithful to the scriptures, they challenged his thinking. And God using them, and also God working in his heart, his eyes were open to the fallacy, for the falseness of, of, of it all. And he went, un, he, he was classed, they, they, he was, his title was a pastor then. He himself said, I do not want that title, because that is not who I am. And he went on a five-year journey of going right back to the bottom, going back to uni under good Bible teachers and was taught correct doctrine. And he's now an advocate to try to speak against the falsehood of the prosperity gospel. But you just look at some of them churches, they are filled because they're prying, sorry, they're praying on people's vulnerability. Legalism. Legalism, the idea that there are rituals or actions that need to be performed before you can, your salvation is secure. Faith in Jesus' redemptive work on the cross just isn't enough. Last year, myself and Jason at the Methodist Church had a lengthy conversation with someone at the Whitney Well who came in and was, pre or was preaching to someone in the Whitney Well that they weren't saved because they hadn't been baptised. This poor guy was scared senseless because he was sitting there thinking, well, if I walk out and get hit by a car, where am I going? It was highlighted to us. And my, I mean, Kelly was there. Myself and Jason had to sit and we got into a, a discussion with this guy and we were telling him, yeah, that's wrong, your doctrine is wrong. He didn't listen, not in that moment. I pray the seeds were sown. 
This is on our doorstep, in our town, 100 metres down the road. We could go on, Jehovah's Witnesses, denying the Trinity, the deity of Christ and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. How many times have you opened your door? Now, I know this happens in the church, but how many times have you opened your door to a Jehovah's Witness and said, come in, let me share with you the true gospel? We don't want to just shun them away. They need to hear the gospel. We invite them in, have a cup of tea, let listen to them with grace and love, but we, we share with them the true gospel. Mormonism, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, they are not one in three. They are three separate beings. Three separate beings. Other gods and goddesses, they believe, outside the Godhead. And they, they're in their, in their doctrine, God was once a man on another planet before being exalted to the Godhead. It's false doctrine. Nowhere in Scripture, in the Bible that has been around for... Well, for us, 18, 1900 years. And the Jewish text should have been around a darn sight longer. Nowhere. Nowhere. But there are millions of people who, are, who follow Mormonism, a, a, a religion that was birthed, what, 60 years ago? The New Age movement which is probably one of the biggest things around us now, the New Age movement. Its roots are in Eastern mysticism. You can walk into town and you can go into many shops and they'll be selling crystals and prayer stones and all of these things. It's all, its roots are in Eastern, sorry, its roots are in New Age, this New Age movement. All roots lead to God, or should I say a God. All roots Whatever, whatever you want to believe, it all leads there anyway. Your truth doesn't necessarily have to be my truth. It's relative. If I want to believe that this glass is my God, that's okay. You don't have to, but that's what I believe. These are things that happen in this new age movement, this new age thinking. Jesus was just an enlightened man and the creator was just some unknowable force. But this is in our town, in our schools, in our workplaces today, this thinking. Big one, uh, big one yoga. I'm not going to ask who goes to yoga classes here. Where did yoga get its background from? Eastern mysticism. Because all of the moves reference a certain aspect of that. But today, it's just, it's, just, it's just health and well-being. There's nothing wrong with it. Got to be careful. Check your sources. Don't just aimlessly wander into things. But where I have the concern, the biggest concern, more than all of the above, more maybe even with the New Age movement, is this rise in progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity. On the face of it, it can seem sound. They say a lot of what we say, they often read from scripture. But when you dig a little deeper, 
and they put a big emphasis on inclusivity and show a lack of emphasis on sin. Downplays the fallenness of humanity. It cares less, less about sound doctrine and more about fighting for social justice and people's feelings and emotions. We have recently seen progressive thinking drive drive to change God's divine standard around marriage. We've seen that in our own town, haven't we? God have mercy. What worries me the most is how we are seeing this movement downplaying not only God's holy word, but making a mockery of God himself. A progressive pastor in America publicly proclaimed that evangelicals have misinterpreted for many years John 3.16. John 3.16. That Jesus wasn't God's son. He wasn't God's son. He was just a man that during his life awakened. Awakened to the reality that he could be like God. At one with God. But it gets better than that. We could all, or we are all gods. We just need to awaken to that truth. And salvation is not about the next life. It's not about us being saved from our rebelliousness, from our sinful ways. No, no, no. It's about freedom in this life. Just being free, recognising who you actually are as a god. This is out there. This is out there. And people are buying into it. When you look at his church, it's packed. Friends, John 3.16 is one of the most famous, remarkable and clear Bible verses in the Bible. In God's word, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You can't make it any clearer. We are destined to perish, but because of God sending Jesus, we have a way to not perish. How you get you're a God in that, I don't know. But people buy into it. This verse, this passage is birthed from the reality that we are all sinners, rebellious creatures destined for eternal hell, a reality that you or I could not save ourselves from. But because of God's great love and his desire for us to be saved from this eternal punishment, he came to earth, born as a human but without sin, and willingly allowed himself to be hung on that Roman cross, willingly bore the full weight of God's righteous judgment upon himself that was meant for us, and willingly paid the cost he owed, we owed him for our rebellious nature. And he invites in this passage us, you and I, all to join him. All he asks, all he asks, in order to receive this free gift of salvation through God's grace, is that you believe by faith in who he is and what he has done for you. 
Friends, this is what Jesus taught. This is what his disciples taught. And this is what the church has been teaching for 2,000 years. But today, in this new progressive Christianity movement, we apparently have got it wrong. This is just pure defilement of God's holy word and out and out heretical in the strongest of sense. But there will be more before Jesus returns. Lord, come quickly. There will be more. The truth is, Jesus gave us what we did not deserve. He gave us salvation. He gave us freedom. He gave us hope. He gave us newness of life. Praise God. And he did all of that through his death upon the cross and his raising to new life. And he's offering it to those in this room who have not yet given their life to Christ. Consider it. Give your life to Christ. Be saved. Come into relationship with Almighty God. Now, I don't highlight these people and these churches, and this is really important. I do not highlight these people and these churches so that we can sit here and just point fingers at them. We can sit here and shake our heads in disbelief. We wouldn't do that. Listen, we all mess up. Be very careful, right? Let's not put ourselves on a pedestal. We all mess up. We're not sitting here, and I would not want us to sit here and just mock them. Look at those, doing it all wrong. God forbid we did that. We're in no position. I do so that we might pray for them that we might pray for them, ask God's mercy and forgiveness for them, pray that they might come out of, the, out of darkness into true light. Yes, we are to be careful of their false teaching, call out their falsehood and their misguidedness, but there is a way of doing that, that mimics still Christ to them. We have to, where possible, strive to do our best to correct their theology with with the life-saving truth of Jesus' gospel. Why? Because I don't want them to suffer the consequences in their action, as Jesus goes on to say. Temptations to sin are sure to come, Jesus says to his disciples but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. When Jesus says, woe, we best pay attention. Everybody best pay attention. Woe gives us this sense of coming anguish, this coming trouble. It's a warning to those in this instance who through their incorrect doctrine and teaching cause his little ones to sin, i.e. be drawn off into unbiblical thinking and unbiblical practices. 
his little ones in this moment being those in the crowds who, who we can assume are still there listening. The sinners, the tax collectors, those on the peripheral who are looking to Jesus, desperate for Jesus. And every believer or new believer throughout time who isn't solidly grounded in their understanding of God's truth. These people Paul refers to in his letter to the Ephesians. And he says these people are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Jesus is warning those false teachers that their practice of leading the vulnerable and the gullible away from his standard is so serious that it would be less worse. That's the point he's making. It would be less worse if they hung a millstone, which, just picture a mill and a massive grinding stone, ridiculously heavy grinding stone, that would just, it'd be a, a donkey or an animal would walk in a circle moving it around and grinding the grain. It would be worse Less worse if someone hung one of those stones around their neck and drowned themselves in the sea than face the consequence at the end of their days of what they're doing. Remember last week? We read how with the, lower, the lower bowels of Hades, this place called Tartarus, was not only reserved for the fallen angels and for the worst of the worst, but it was also reserved for the false teachers and the prophets, false prophets. Jesus isn't mucking around. Don't mess with his word. Paul is right when he said in his letter to Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That is why these churches are so packed. I don't want to go to that place and listen to sin and hell and damnation and destruction and righteousness and, you know, it's all right, the grace and the love is all good, but I don't want to hear about that other stuff. So I'm going to go to this other place where they don't talk about that. They just tell me I'm awesome. They tell me that I can get what I want from God if I have enough faith and give enough money. It's itching ears. People don't like being told what they don't want to hear. So in this world where access to preachers, teachers and messages are all over our phones, all over the TVs and all over the computers, how can we discern what is correct teaching and not? Firstly, and probably most importantly, you won't know if you don't spend time reading your word. <laughs> what to look out for is all here. It's all here. But we would rather spend time for hours during the week just listening to preachers around the world tell us what this says instead of picking it up ourselves but then how do you know that all of those 20 pastors in the week 
all around the world that you listen to are actually teaching the right thing if you don't have at least a, a healthy grounding of the word. You won't know if you don't regularly sit under the teaching of faithful Bible expositors. Now, I underlined in my, my notes here, faithful. It's not about who's the loudest, who's the most charismatic, who's got the biggest church and the biggest followers or sold the biggest books. Who is faithful to God's word? Who is prepared to say, I actually don't know what that means? Open the book of Revelation. There is a lot in there. There are certain stuff in there. I don't know what he's saying. And I've listened to other pastors who I trust around the world who go, don't know. But that's okay because God doesn't give us everything. So don't try and stretch the word. If God doesn't make it clear, then we just pray, prayfully, you know, we, we prayerfully trust that we're not meant to know. The second is to be part of a God-fearing church that is committed to God's word and committed to making disciples of Jesus. They are two things are fundamental. But then I would suggest that there are certain characteristics to a preach or to a church that you should be aware of. This isn't about sitting there with a pen and a pencil going, right, am I going to hear or see every single one of these things? No, you are prayerfully discerning. But there are certain things that, they, that should, certain characteristics that should flow through that church and that preaching. The first I would suggest is, is the divine Godhead evident? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. Is God, this is a big one, if you hear contrary to this, run a mile. Is God proclaimed as God? If he's not, run a mile. Two, is the gospel message preached? Now, it doesn't have to be this really long, in-depth gospel message every single week, but is the essence of it there? Is the essence there? Mankind's fallen state and sinful nature, God's righteous judgment, Jesus' redemptive sacrifice on the cross, Salvation via God's grace through faith in Jesus. Hope now and hope for the future. Is the essence of it there? Number three is God's word handled with respect and reverence. We should this, we should fear what we hear in here. But it should also encourage us. Are we treating this with respect and reverence? Is... Are they, are people you're listening to adding things into the scripture to make it, to make it sound like what they want it to sound like? Are they taking things away from it? I will jump over that. I don't want to speak about that. Is there any contradiction to what you know to be solid grounding in scripture? Are they turning around and saying, I've got a special knowledge for you, church. God gave this to me for you. It's not in here, but he's given it to me. This new doctrine, this, this, this new truth. Run a mile. Doesn't mean God can't speak through people. That's not what I'm saying. It's when it's proclaimed as a new doctrine, a truth that no one else has ever known. 
that's additional to this is God's word presented as the final authority in all things pertaining to God and right living. And lastly, just as a banner, I would say, do they model being a follower and a disciple of Jesus? Are the fruits of the Spirit evident? Not all of them, you don't have to tick every single one, but is the essence of the fruits of the Spirit there? Do they care for the lost, for the hungry, the destitute? Those who are heartbroken and hurting? Do they lead a servant life? And are they generous with what they have? Do a little homework. Don't just blindly go into all of these different preachers and preaches throughout, you know, that's all around us on Facebook and YouTube and do a little bit of homework. Come and speak to one of us and say, look, I'm enjoying this, but what are your thoughts? Are they, are, they, are they all right? Are they sound from your perspective? People have done this. Get a second opinion. Do a little bit of homework. Go onto their church. Look at their statement of faith. What is it they actually believe? Now, a disclaimer. When talking about false preachers and doctrine, we are not talking about doctrinal disagreements within the evangelical church. Okay? Many solid Bible teachers and scholars lovingly underlined, bold, lovingly disagree with each other on secondary non-salvation matters. There are people in this church that we can... Dis- there are disagreements on these secondary things. That's okay. That's healthy to have loving, dis- loving discussions about these things. But they will agree, they will agree on the core fundamentals of faith. They will agree on those things, as has been preached for 2,000 years. Those, excuse me, those things which pertain, pertain to the divine Godhead, man's sinful, fallen state, and praise God, salvation through Jesus Christ. Can I invite the band up, please? Jesus' final words to his disciples in this moment was for them to watch out for themselves. Watch out for yourselves, he says. They are to guard themselves from the allure of false teachers, but they are also to be careful themselves in how they use and how they teach God's word. So it is for us today. Friends, there is no greater responsibility for a Christian than the correct handling, sharing and teaching of God's word from the preacher who stands on the pulpit on the Sunday morning to the who teach the kids in kids' church. And every believer, that's every believer sitting in this room today who might encounter someone who asks, well, what's it all about? What does this Bible verse mean? <coughs> One of us has a responsibility to be careful with how we handle God's word. We all have a responsibility to keep learning and understanding God's word so that we can share and teach his word faithfully and correctly.
It's why I'm so grateful that we have a plurality of elders here. Because if it was just left to one person, I might unknowingly drift off. But when we get together and we talk about doctrine and scripture, there's five of us that are prayerfully considering and coming to a position. It's so important. There is no room for ignorance of understanding and no excuse for any one of us to not live our life faithfully reading God's word, studying God's word and learning God's word. He expects that of us. And the reality is that the unsaved around us need us to do that as well. I'm just going to close just by reading from 1 John. Dear friends, he says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses Jesus as the Christ, who has come in the flesh, is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now already in the world. Amen. Thank you.